Good morning. Welcome to uh, the services here at the Prada Church of Christ. It's always a blessing to stand before you. I trust you're coming off a rather relaxing week, uh, having celebrated Thanksgiving. Hopefully with those dearest to you, and if not, those that you hold dearest uh, that are around you. But I pray that you had a good weekend. Now before I get started, on behalf of Ashley and I and our family, we'd like to thank each of you for the prayers that uh, so, so consistently have gone up on Kaylin's behalf as she continues to fight this, uh, this journey concerning her health. Um, Good news is the, the procedure was a success. Bad news is she's, she's having a little trouble getting over the, uh, the surgical side of it. But that, Lord willing, will, will pass in the days and weeks to come. But thank you so much for the prayers for our family. In addition to that, the prayers for the fire that, uh, that affected us so uh, surprisingly. But uh, all that being said, we thank you. We love you and we appreciate all the, uh, the thoughts, prayers, and consideration on our behalf. You know, my, my hope is what I prepared this morning you'll find interesting. It, uh, it definitely is something that, that I found interesting. I found that, um, that I didn't know what I thought I knew. And in talking to others, I think there's a pretty good possibility that many of you will feel the same way. You know, we just, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. We talked about being thankful and... and uh, enjoying our time together as a family. But I specifically want to talk to you about Thanksgiving 1621. You may not have known, but your Thanksgiving Day celebration was actually the 400th birthday of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Day 1621 was where it all started. She said, well, Brian, you know, we're, we're talking on Sunday morning and you're talking about a Thanksgiving day that took place in the year 1621. Where's that found in Scripture? Well, you're right, it's not. However, we're going to be looking at and reflecting back on the journal entries that were written by the pilgrims as we know them today as they were embarking on this journey to a new land. We're going to be looking at what they did and why they did it. And then we're going to close by covering what Thanksgiving Day meant to them and reflect a little bit on what Thanksgiving Day meant to you just a couple days ago. Now, as we get started, I'd like to talk to you for a minute about God's providence. The providence of God. You know what? The word providence is defined as divine guidance or care. Now, additionally, providence of God can be described as a protective care of God or of nature as a spiritual power. Have you ever thought about what providence is? 
Providence probably most easily can be defined by the first seven letters of the word, which is to provide. It's God's providing for his people. It's recognizing that God has an active role that he chooses to play in each and every life that he has created. You know, the word providence is only found once in the Bible. Specifically, that's Acts 24, verse 2. And here it's not even referring to God, but it's, it's to the, the forethought and the work of, a, of another man. It really doesn't play into this lesson at all. It's not used in a capacity that we would most likely use it today. You see, although the word's not used in Scripture, it's, it's actually a pretty significant word to Christians. When you consider the Old Testament, it's probably easiest to understand when you look at it from the perspective of God's providential purpose for Israel and the world. You see, divine providence does not work independently of our free will. But rather, providence... Providential blessings are conditioned based on our character and, and more importantly, our conduct. Conduct's going to be a reflection of the character of the person we are. God's power that preserves and governs and and guides us in this life is always recognized. It's always inseparable from his power that created us and commands us in the terms of our faith. You know, the Old Testament provides some doctrine describing divine providence. Consider Proverbs 2, verse 7 and 8. It says that he layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints. Proverbs 3 and 6. In all thy ways acknowledge him. And he shall direct thy paths. Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Consider twenty and twenty four. It says, "Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way?" There's several more verses that could be used to illustrate this, but, but God's providence in our life today is alive and well. And what we're going to find is that the history of those that came before us that has directly impacted our ability to sit here this morning is full of God's providence. Pretty awesome story. What you're going to find out this morning is that most likely if you graduated in the last 40 to 50 years, what you have been taught about the pilgrimage is half-truths and unfortunately, oftentimes, completely inaccurate. Again, I emphasize to you this morning 
that if I'm not speaking with Scripture from the Word, if I'm referring to the story of the pilgrims, the information that I've got came directly from the writings of the pilgrims many times as they were living it. Specifically, use books such as the Mortis Relation, the Plymouth Plantation, and a relation or journal of the beginning. William Bradford is going to be quoted several times. William Bradford is a very instrumental part of this pilgrimage. But to really understand the pilgrimage, what brought forward this desire to seek a new land, you really have to go back to the year 1517. You see, that was under King Henry VIII. During that time, to kind of put it in perspective, Martin Luther, some of you are familiar with him, he took his 95 grievances against the Catholic Church and he literally nailed them to the front door of the church. So 1517, the king, shortly after this occurs, decides that he is going to speak out on behalf of the church. He publicly proclaims his devout belief in the Catholic Church. Claims that he is their strongest proponent. Claims that these grievances brought forth mean nothing to him. Interestingly enough, fast forward. 1527, old King Henry has a falling out with the Catholic Church. What happens? Well, King Henry decides that he wants to divorce his wife. Catholic Church says, no, no, you're not going to divorce your wife. God will not allow for such. King Henry does what, well, if you look around our community today, community today, many have done. He says, well, then I'm not going to go to church there. I'm going to create my own church. And he does just that. He proceeds to disbar the Catholic Church in England. In doing so, he creates his own church. Church of the State. Also referred to as the Anglican Church. You even see some of those churches around here today. Now, the Anglican Church is very similar to the Catholic Church in a lot of ways. But really, the biggest difference is in the church he creates, the king is at the top of the chain of command. The king decides. He is the highest-ranking individual. He decides what is and is not acceptable. He declares that the Church of England is to be the state church, and that all are to go to his church. Now, at this point, there's really not a lot of punishment taking place, other than they are told that they have to, and it's publicly decried that the Catholic Church is no longer going to be tolerated. Now, once King Henry passes away, we have Queen Mary. History accords her as being Bloody Mary. Why? Because she literally burned at the stake hundreds of Protestants that believed in the Lord. History records her to be a very, very bad woman. Fortunately for us, or or them, I should say, her reign didn't last long. She died of influenza. Shortly thereafter is when we get King Edward VI. Now, what's unique about King Edward VI? He's a kid. He's a boy king. 
Well, as a boy king, what does that mean? That means that he basically made his decisions to match that of the wishes of his handlers. He didn't reign very long, but while he was reigning, the book of common prayer was published. And it was through his direction as king that the book of common prayer was placed as the book that was to be used in all churches on Sunday morning. No more would the preachers have the ability to preach sermons. You would preach from the common book of prayer. As I mentioned, his, his reign was cut short. After that, we move into Queen Mary. Queen Mary takes control. History, excuse me, not Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth takes control. Queen Elizabeth is unique in the fact that she was reigning when the thoughts of the pilgrimage really started. We said, well, what happened? Well, see, it's during her time that the Church of England established their complete authoritarianism. They literally told every church how they would operate, how they, they would conduct themselves, and would not allow any variance from that. They introduced punishment for those that did not follow. However, under her reign, the punishments were not readily handed down. They were utilized, but it wasn't overbearing. The fact was, she decreed that churches could no longer operate as they saw fit as to the teachings of Scripture. Now again, keep in mind, the Reformation period is taking place. People are reading the Scripture. They're noticing that, hey... God's word says this, but we're worshiping like this. That's not acceptable. People are taking responsibility for their worship, recognizing the shortcomings of what they've practiced because to that point they had done so because the king had instructed them. They had done so because the Catholic church had done it that way. They accepted things as they were. Now they have knowledge, and with knowledge comes power, and through power, when following God, comes the blessings of God through God's providence. Now she continues to reign until about the year 1603. You see, at 1603, King James the first takes the throne. Kind of give you a reference, 1611 is when King James completed the Bible that's in the pew backs before you this morning. Now, interestingly, you would probably think King James the first, he wrote the Bible, must be a pretty good guy. No. Here's another fine example where God takes someone and uses them to accomplish his desires. King James had the funds to put together a very accurate, what seemed to be absolutely accurate, Bible. 
He had the funds to pay all those that researched it, the theologians of the, of the day, spread out all over the country, and then gathered them to discuss the Bible that we have today. The King James was not a good man. He was not a strong Christian man. Think about it. He's the head of the Anglican church. And he's sure not willing to give up that power. But you can assure he knew what was in that book. He paid to have it made. We use it today. It's been proven perfect in the sense of accuracy many times throughout history. Now, King James. What does King James do? Well, he takes on this initiative of punishing anyone that does not assemble at the Anglican church on the first day of the week. Not only is he punishing you if you didn't go to church, but if you did go to church and it wasn't the Anglican church, he really came down on you. You say, well, you know, before you said Queen Elizabeth said there was punishment. No, to commit this crime was considered treason. It was an act against the state, against the king. There was no separation of church and state. Well, now, as you might imagine, this doesn't sit well with the believers. See, it's at this time that the, 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 the pilgrims, as we know it, really started thinking about they're going to need to take action. They're going to need to get out of there. They were looking for a place to go where they could worship God in accordance to the New Testament church. As scripture tells us to do. You see, they have a question. They have a question they had to answer. Did the political powers that be have the authority to demand a form of worship? You know, it's interesting, right now we live in the United States of America and there are churches on our East Coast and West Coast, perhaps other places, but I know for sure the East Coast and West Coast that are facing and being forced to answer that question today. And most likely we're going to face that question right here at the Prada Drive at some point in the not-so-distant future. But you see, these, ans- these men answered that question They answered no. You see, this group of believers had a stirring in their heart to do something about the situation. They couldn't endure it. They couldn't just take it on the chin. They couldn't take the constant persecution for worshiping God. See, this group opposed the king's actions. But like any group, this group had two sides. On one side, you had the Puritans. What did they want? They wanted purity in religion. What was unique about them? Their approach was that the Anglican church was a little better than the Catholic church, so we can reform this church, and we'll continue to reform it, and slowly but surely get back to what God intended. 
And then you have the other side, which was deemed to be the separatist. The separatists had the opinion that, hey, this, this ship has sunk. There is nothing here we're salvaging. We need to do what God says today, not someday in the future. And they are separating. Now, interestingly enough, the term separatist really did not stick, if you will, until after King James himself used it. I'm not saying that he coined the term, perhaps he did, but when he began to use that word to describe these individuals is whenever they really took on the labeling of separatist. So now time goes on. It's the year 1607, and things really start to change. Every Lord's Day, approximately 200-plus believers would gather at what would be called the Scurvy Manor Congregation. William Brewster owned a farm there, history records show. He also served at this church as an elder. They conducted their service in accordance to Scripture, the New Testament church. In doing that, as you might imagine, this was uh, well before vehicles, Folks would walk in great distances to take part in the church service on the first day of the week. In doing so, to get 200 plus people in the middle of a farm every Sunday, it kind of drew a little attention. As you would assume, that attention brought the authorities The authorities come in, they recognize what's taking place, they take all the men that have any leadership or any responsibility in this and they throw them in jail. This is also the the church that William Bradford attended. He was thrown in jail as well. His family had owned farmland at that time for four generations. We're talking about families that had been there for a long time. They had planted their roots. They had a lot of assets that had built up over over many years. These men went to jail because they chose to worship God in a farm, in the field, bothering nobody. Well, fortunately, history shows that they were in jail and those that arrested them recognized them all to be farmers, deemed them to not be a threat. They kept them in jail for 30 days, released them, and said, go back to farming, stop causing trouble, move on with yourself. Obviously, that wasn't going to be acceptable to these men, but they gladly left the jail cell. Then in getting out of jail they recognized that the time had come. It was no longer that we are hearing about Christians going to jail, being persecuted, being exiled from the country, and all their assets being taken. Now it's happening right here in rural England in the middle of a farm. So what do they do? Later on in that year, 1607, they sold all their belongings they had decided that it was worth it to them to pursue freedom of religion. When they sold those belongings, they took all that money that they gathered 
And they went down to Boston, Massachusetts, and they hired a ship captain. That ship captain was going to do one thing. He was going to board all the people. He was going to take them to Holland. They knew if they could get to Holland, they would have freedom of religion. You're talking about a lot of folks here. There's not an exact number to that that I could find, but it is is believed to have been over 100, most likely around 125. You're talking men, women, and children. It's a 60-mile walk to Boston, Massachusetts from their church. They do this over a couple of nights because they don't want to get attention, right? That's a big group of them traveling. They travel it by night. They finally arrive. They walk to the ship and the captain has rolled over on them and the authorities are there and they arrest every single man and throw them in prison, throw them in jail. All the women and children are left there to fend for themselves. What do you do? If that was you, would you think it was worth it? 60 miles away from home, you've sold everything, you've now been ripped off, now you're in jail and your wife and kids are sitting on the street starving. Once again, those that arrested them looked at them and said, you're a bunch of farmers, you're not a threat. They kept them in jail again 30 days, sent them on their way. Stop the nonsense. Go back. Farm your land. Stop causing trouble. They go back, as you might imagine. But they weren't done. What do they do? Well, first off, they've got to raise more money. Because they've got to get to Holland so they can have freedom of religion. Takes them approximately three years. They raise the funds. They decide to follow the exact same plan other than they hired a Holland ship captain. Well, this time, they decide we're not going to all travel by night. So what we're going to do is the men are going to travel by night. We're going to put the women and children on smaller vessels. They're going to float the creeks and the rivers to get down to the bay. The men are going to board the ship, going to go out to the bay. The smaller vessels are going to come out. ship's going to come next to them. All parties are going to get on the boat. They're going to go to Holland. It's going to be a blessing. Indeed, they do it. They take off. Women are on the boats. Children are on the boats. Men are walking. It's a long journey, right? Water moves faster than walk. Women get there a day early. The water has been very rough. They are sick as can be. Rather than just float out there in the middle of the water, they go off to a little tributary, they pull off to the side to get on dry land and stop the nauseous, sick feeling and the, and the, the vomiting that they're experiencing. So they're there a day early, so they, they've really got some time to kill. The men get there, ship captain's ready, they board, they go out to the bay. The journals reflect that the men are in the bay And the women's boat takes off. But it's low tide. The smaller boat gets caught on the sandbar of the tributary going into the bay. They can see each other, but they're not close. Now they're forced to wait. They wait for the sun, or excuse me, for the high tide to come in. About that time, the sun is rising. 
People begin to notice. we got a bunch of women and kids stuck out there in the water. The authorities go in. Journal entries record that they came in on horseback with muskets. The ship captain sees all this going down. He says, man, I am not getting arrested. He sticks the, the ship to sail to Holland. So now you've got all the men sailing to Holland with the ship captain they paid. You've got all the women stuck on a sandbar with the babies, and you've got the authorities on top of them. You're going to another country. Is it worth it? Those men, you would think that would be bad enough. No, they encountered a storm. Depending on whose journal you read, the storm was pretty bad. A lot of them thought the boat was going to sink. The boat didn't sink. They end up landing in Holland. They make their way to Amsterdam. Over the next few weeks, they send back small parties. It takes several weeks, but they bring back the women and the children uh, so that that the family units are, are secured. Is it worth it? Would you do it? So now they're in Amsterdam. They have freedom of religion. They're able to worship God without fear of persecution. But now they're immigrants. Amsterdam is made up, uh, it's a city of vendors and merchants. These are farm men. They work with their hands. Not only are they not really skilled in doing the whole business thing, but they're immigrants They don't relate. They are having to take remedial jobs. They are all in poverty. They're barely making ends meet. They're struggling. They said, we're going to move down to Leiden. It's about 20 to 30 miles. 20 to 30 miles. They go down there. Why? Because it's a little more industrial area. They can work with their hands. And indeed... History shows us that they stayed there for about 11 or 12 years. Some of the men were actually very successful. They actually were able to carve out a living down there. Now, William Bradford... said about this time they ran into a problem they ran into the problem of the Dutch culture he said but that which was more lamentable and of all sorrows most heavy to the bone was that many of their children by these occasions and the great licentiousness of youth in that country in the manifold temperatures or temptations of the place were drawn away by evil examples into extravagant and dangerous courses, getting the reins off their necks and departing their parents. Some became soldiers, others took voyages at sea, and some others, even worse, tending to desoluteness and the danger of their souls, to the great grief of their parents and dishonor of God, so that they saw their prostate would be in danger to degenerate and be corrupted. Question for your parents this morning. When you look at the American culture, you think about all the mess that we're trying to protect our children from. Do you relate to that? Absolutely we do. We're facing the same battles they faced back then.
You see, they had moved to Holland and they had freedom of religion. But what they hadn't planned on was the permissiveness, permissiveness of the Dutch, Dutch culture and the impact it was having on their children. As immigrants, a lot of them did not speak the native tongue, but their children were picking it up and choosing to speak it over their natural tongue. They were getting away with all kinds of stuff, in essence. And they were losing their children in the process. The soul of their children. 1617, this concern finally manifests into a three-year process of planning to depart for the new world. Now think about all the different times that God had to see these folks through to get to this point. They walked away from some their riches, others their families. They left it all behind in England to get a new start in Holland. And now they're in Holland. They finally get on their feet. But they realize that, that they're losing all their youth to the craziness of the society around them. What would you do? Would you have faith in God that he's going to see you through? Would you trust in God's providence? You see, they put together this three-year plan, and they considered many different destinations. They looked at South America. They actually looked at some islands. Of course, they looked at North America, right? But you see, they couldn't afford the trip. Once again, they didn't have the money. They made plans to go ahead and pursue North America. Why did they choose North America? Because Jamestown was already here. Plymouth was not the first colony. Jamestown was settled in 1606. But Jamestown had investors that funded the, the, the travels over. So what did they do? They decided they want to go out and get, get, get investors. Investors to pay their trip to get over there and start a new colony. Well, they start to pursue that. But the problem was some of the people literally could not afford to go. They had, they had health issues or they, they, they were too old to, to safely make the journey. There were members now at this point that had traveled to Holland that could not take off and go to the New World. William Robertson, which was one of the leaders of the church back then in Holland, late in Holland, he decided that he and his wife were going to stay. They were going to stay to continue the work of the church that had been begun. Now, I share that with you because it doesn't really play a big part in our pilgrimage that we're discussing this morning, but I think you would find it interesting. History records that when Mr. Robertson passed, the university and ministers of the city accompanied him to his grave with all their accustomed solemnities, bewailing the great loss not only to the one church, but some of the chief of them affirmed that all the churches of Christ sustained a loss by the death 
of that worthy instrument of the gospel. What a compliment. Coming by the leaders of that land and then to declare that all the churches of Christ suffered a loss because that one man passed. I share that to point out that the church was thriving. They were saving souls. They were spreading the gospel, which is what they knew they were to be doing. Now, getting back to this pilgrimage, they're looking for investors. They can't find any. They finally decide we're going to go to, the, the, to North America. We're going to pursue the same route that the Jamestown colony took. They go to the, forget the name of the, the group of investors. I believe they refer to themselves as the London group. It's the same group that funded Jamestown. They go to them. They strike a deal. They agree that they're going to, going to pay for the voyage over. Then the company goes under, or as we would say today, the company goes bankrupt. Now, once again, they're without investors. What are they going to do? Well, as, as things would work out, there was a wealthy investor, wealthy young man that gathered other wealthy individuals to form their own investment company, and basically that company funded the journey to the new world, North America. So now they're in Holland. They've got the investor. What do they got to do? Well, once again, they've got to sell everything. You've got to have the money, and you can't take it all with you. So they sell everything. They've got the money. <laughs> what should farmers not do? Farmers should not spend all their money on a boat. They bought the Speedwell. The Speedwell was the boat that actually carried over the original colonists that settled Jamestown back in 1606. They bought the boat that took them. Took those folks, it'll take us too. Well, the investors were a little wiser with their investment. They chose to rent the Mayflower, which most of us are familiar with, to take the journey to the new land. They sell all their possessions. They get on the Speedwell. The Speedwell goes over to England, docks next to the Mayflower. They fix the Speedwell because the Speedwell took on water. They decide to leave. They all load up. They set voyage. Shortly after setting voyage, Speedwell's taking on more water. They turn around and come back. It takes two weeks. Speedwell is repaired. They again all travel outward. They get about 300 miles out. Speedwell starts taking on major water. They both turn around and come back. It's at this time the decision is made that the Speedwell is not seaworthy. Now they have two boats. But see, one of the things that happened here is they had the addition of other people. Journal notes describe these people as strangers to the pilgrims. They were called strangers. To the strangers, they referred to the pilgrims as pilgrims. So, so you had two different people here. The strangers were there because they were pursuing money. They wanted to get to the new land. It was kind of like the gold rush, right? They wanted to get to the new land. They wanted to make lots of money. They just they want to make want to make the most of it. The pilgrims, on the other hand, had one reason for going. Freedom of religion. And in doing that, they wanted to establish their own colony of farmers so that all the different temptations that were dragging their children away would not be present. Now the speedwell's not going. They end up having to, to have everybody jump in and, and, and get in the Mayflower. Obviously, May, the Mayflower can't hold everybody. 
about 102 people got on board the Mayflower. There were some that didn't make it. Some family units actually got divided over this. In doing that, they all board the Mayflower. The Mayflower, if you look up there, is a rather big boat. No. We've got over 100 people here today, I would guess. Thereabouts. I'm not sure I haven't counted. The Mayflower had 102 passengers and 30 crew members on it. Those 102 passengers were in that that second level. Now, if you looked at that scale, that scale is 30 feet. Okay? The living area of this boat was 80 foot long by 24 foot wide at the widest. You got 102 people in an area 80 by 24 at the widest. And they're setting sail to go to the new land. A lot of folks said they wouldn't make it. They had trust in God. That journey was not easy. During that time, they went into the storm of the equinox. That's what they called it. We would call it today a tropical storm or a hurricane. As you might imagine, because of the delays of going back, going back, going back, and then finally setting voyage, instead of arriving to the new land in the spring, that 66-day journey at a whopping estimated speed of two miles an hour, put them there in November. Now they're there in November. They can't make it up to where they had intended to colonize. If we looked at a map today based on their writings, had they have landed where they wanted, they would have landed in or around New York City. Virginia colony at that point stretched all the way up above the Hudson. They can't get there. Sea's too rough. They said, we went off this boat. The leaders jumped onto smaller boats, went out looking for a place to settle, didn't find anything. They're making their way back to the Mayflower. And they write in their journals that it was the pitch black and a large wave came out of nowhere and threw them on dry land. They decide, forget it. We're not going back out. It's too dangerous. They hunker down right there. The next morning, they wake up to find that they are actually on the Wimpanoag Indian village. It's a large village. It's already set. It's set for the taking. That they can't find anybody. They can't find any Indians, but here it is. We've got this, this, big, this big village, this big area that is level. It's ready, it's ready for them, perhaps. They do some looking around. They find corn that's been buried to be, to be used in the future from the Indians. Well, as they will later find out, what's taking place here is the Wimpanoag tribe that lived there actually died off a year before. They died off of either smallpox or chickenpox. Nobody knows for sure, but everyone in the tribe died. So here it is in the middle of the night. They've managed to get washed up on this perfect location. And nobody is there to claim it, and it's theirs. It's even recorded in the journals that they spent time, days after days, looking for someone to pay for the corn that they found and it started using. 
Pilgrims were good people. Their heart was in the right spot. They trusted God to see them through even the most difficult of times. Well, now winter is set in. It's very cold. Over this first year, the 102 passengers, and it's still 102, because two people died on the passage over, but there were two babies born, so you're still at 102. Those 102 people, in the first few months that they are there, due to elements and illness, die off at an incredible rate. They end up with 52 of them left. 52 people is all that's left. Now, during this miserably cold weather, and they have been blessed with this perfect setting for a place to to, to call home, they haven't seen anyone. They haven't talked to anyone. They say it takes four months before they meet their first neighbor, if you will, and they were a little bit scared at the time. But during this four-month time, they actually wrote what is commonly referred to as the Mayflower Compact. You may not be able to read it there, but I just want to read you some of the words. And keep in mind, this is written many years ago. But just consider where their mind is when they're writing this. In the name of God, a man... We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, Ireland, King Defender of the Faith, and having undertaken for the glory of God in the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern ports of Virginia. Do by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. And this continues. This is basically their laws. It's how they're going to govern themselves. Do you notice how many times God is included in this document? Keep in mind, those 50... Two people, only 41 of them signed because you've got to be a man to sign, right? Women at this point don't have voting rights. Of course, children don't. 41 men signed. Not all of them were pilgrims. But yet, at this point, they understood the providence of God. They believed. So they do decide to sit rude right here, and they call it Plymouth. Make no mistake, they did not name it Plymouth. The map told them it was Plymouth. The map was actually written in 16, well, from a settler of Jamestown back in 1606. Once it had been drawn, it had made its way over to England, and that's the map that they used when they came to the new land. This area happened to be called Plymouth. They named it Plymouth. That's the Plymouth you and I hear about in school today. In doing this, as I mentioned before, it's been a very tough journey and they've lost many. 
William Bradford's wife actually died during this time that winter. She fell off the Mayflower into frigid cold water. They got her out, but she died of hypothermia. At least that's what it's believed. She died of the elements. So now he's a widow. William Bradford actually became the second governor of Plymouth. He was reelected because the Mayflower Compact says that every position is to be elected yearly. He was re-elected for 31 straight years. He obviously carried a little respect amongst them. Granted, it's a very small group, but as you might imagine, as time goes on, years turn into decades, decades turn into more. There are more and more people coming and taking interest in what they've got going on over there at Plymouth. But we're going to get to that in a minute. Let's get back to the fact that now we're in March. Four months have passed. They've not met anybody. Now they meet Massasui. Massasui is the head of the Wampanoag tribe. Obviously, he wasn't a part of this specific village, but he is the head of the tribe. He comes in. He's actually the one that blesses with them with the knowledge that, hey, the people all died, smallpox, chickenpox. That's, that's where this is. The pilgrims end up making a treaty with Massasua. The treaty is really pretty clear, pretty basic. Non-aggression. We're not going to attack each other. We're not going to hurt each other. And we're going to be allies. We're going to defend each other. Should either one of us be attacked, the other will show up. History records that actually the Wampanoag tribe was attacked and the pilgrims went to fight for them. With them, of course, but but they lived up to the treaty. The point being that they were friends. It's during this time that William Bradford stated this. May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in the wilderness, but they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord, praise he is, because he is good, and his mercies endure forever. Yes, let them which have been redeemed of the Lord show how he was delivered from the hand of the oppressor. When they wandered in the desert wilderness, out of the way, and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, their soul was overwhelmed in them. Let them confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. I'm not going to go back because we're running short on time and I'm going to try to speed things up here. But if you look into that, he's basically recanting Psalms 107 verses 1 through 9. He's relating it to him and his people. But picking up here, it's in 1621 that they have Thanksgiving. In 1621, they had Thanksgiving. Why? They clearly write why many times. They have Thanksgiving because of the providence of God and what he did to see them through and get them to the point that they were. Did they have Thanksgiving together? No. They had Thanksgiving with the Indians. 
realize I'm short on time, but I want to go back here because there's an important part of this that I think is so incredibly valuable. I told you that they met Massasui, the, the head of the tribe. What I didn't tell you is that the most valuable friend Indian they had was Squanto. Who is Squanto? Interestingly, 10 years before Squanto had been in essence, taken as prisoner by the Spanish. Squanto was a member of the Wampanoag tribe that died. The Spanish sell him to the French as a slave. He goes to France. While in France, Franciscan monks pay for his release. Now, he's obviously a pretty smart guy because he decides he wants to earn some money and get back home. He pays his way to England. Over there, he learns English. He also learns the gospel and becomes a Christian. He, at that point, saves the money to take the journey all the way back to the new land. He goes to his tribe not knowing that they're dead and gone. He goes to his tribe expecting to see his family, his people, and he walks into a bunch of pilgrims. But what he did during that time that he befriended them until the day he died, is teach them how to cultivate the land, how to plant their crops, the right time to do so, how to hunt. Hunting was a lot different in England than it was in in the States. And the animals were a lot different too, so the writing show. But he taught them how to utilize this new world. You see, the pilgrims on that 1621... November day. They celebrated Thanksgiving because God had worked miraculous things in their life to ensure that they persevered and they survived. They didn't have this celebration by themselves. Massasui brought 90 of his people with him. The pilgrims brought turkeys, fish, vegetables, corn specifically. The Indians brought forward deer and other vegetables. This day of Thanksgiving was not a day. It lasted three days as they all praised God and gave thanks to God for seeing them through so that they could have the freedom of religion. That freedom of religion that they enjoyed then, the colony that they developed, can't get into it, but they start out as socialists as we know them today. Everything belongs to the group. Within a period of about two to three years, they recognized that that was an awful plan. The people that had the ability to do more weren't doing more because they were only getting a small piece of the pie. They switch over to what we would call capitalism. Free market. We today practice the free market that they started. Quotes go back and record the fact that they They went back to the market and the economic bearing, if you will, that the Bible instructed, rather than that of the Romans. It's an incredible story how they pay off their investors, but most importantly, what I think each of us should take from this today is that despite the challenges that come in our lives, we should recognize that we too are pilgrims. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off 
and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have the opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. See, brothers and sisters, we too are pilgrims. Regardless of where we find ourselves and the challenges we face, I doubt very seriously that we're getting deserted from our family going to another country. I doubt very seriously that most of us are going to die together of, 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 of the elements. I doubt very seriously and I pray that none of us are going to die defending the faith. But I also pray that each of us has the courage and the faith to trust in God's providence and the fact that he works through us and it's only through our free will that his providence can take place. And that we recognize that he is active, he never leaves us, and he will always see us through even the darkest of days. You know, this morning, I haven't spoke on the first principles. But perhaps there's one here this morning that feels they've been sufficiently taught. Perhaps your heart has been stirred and you recognize the need to be baptized, become a member of the body of Christ. Or maybe there's one here this morning that's hurting, that needs the prayers of your church family. Well, we are here to support you. We love you. We care for you. And we would ask you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.